The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Today's episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark is brought to you by Natural Disasters, the new original podcast series from our friends at ParCast. Humans are the most adaptable species on the planet. We endure fierce blizzards, build communities in the blistering heat of the Sahara, and erect societies on mountains. And ParCast's newest program, Natural Disasters, reminds us that ultimately Mother Nature is always in control. I'll be back after our first story tonight, to tell you a little more about natural disasters and what ParCast has in store for you. Until then, go ahead and lock your doors. Double-check beneath your bed. You never know what might come crawling out while I've got you distracted. (laughs) Stay tuned. The show's about to begin. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. 
Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 9. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing four stories for you about eight-legged antagonists, wretched rides, secrets in the sea, and invertebrate villains. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. And thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale of terror this evening comes to us courtesy of an author who goes by the name Pen Phantom 13. Without further ado, I present to you Beckoning from the Deep. A few days ago, I uprooted my entire existence and relocated to the southwest cape of Stewart Island, New Zealand. Initially, I had intended this trip as an escape to be shared with my wife as we lived out the rest of our days in beach-dwelling bliss. Yet, as we aged, I began fostering a general disdain for the direction that society seemed to have chosen for itself. I simply grew weary of the unceasing, perpetually fruitless debates over issues like race, homosexuality, political agendas, abortion, and the like. As far as I was concerned, people could do as they wished, as long as they weren't harming anyone else. Simple-minded and a bit naive, perhaps, but my stance nonetheless. With my frustration mounting, my wife and I began planning the move in our late thirties, hopefully with two full decades ahead of us, to get our affairs properly aligned to allow for such an exodus. But the train derailed as I reached 43, and she was diagnosed with an untreatable brain tumor. Two years later, I was alone and wanted nothing more than to expedite my exit from mainstream civilization. I sold our house and our cars, the latter being more painful as I prized my 69 Stingray convertible. Nonetheless, the profit from its sale was necessary to procure adequate funding for the relocation. Disappearing is no cheap venture, and it brought me an odd sense of closure in regards to that chapter of my life. The crippling depression from the loss of my wife remained, but I felt little remorse for the loss of our lifestyle. The outdoors had always been a passion of mine, since my earliest memory. Fishing, kayaking, game hunting, cross-country hiking— and anything else without a ceiling over it had always been my forte. My spirit yearned for a climate requiring a survivalist mentality, and I had every intention of spending the rest of my days 
in just such an environment. Thus, my research led me to Stewart Island, the southernmost portion of New Zealand. The mild climate, sparse population, immediate access to open water, and dense forestry completed my checklist. The prospect of dangerous wildlife or poisonous vegetation brought me no qualms, after all. There aren't even any terrain-dwelling snakes on the island. What few locals were present on Stewart Island were nice enough upon my arrival, having harbored a few tourists here and there for the more accessible beaches. I did draw a few laughs from the older residents when I told them where I planned to go, and encountered one old man that simply shook his head and walked away when I mentioned the southwest cape's eastern shore. But I could not be discouraged. There was no turning back. My final stop was at the local supply depot in Oban. There I purchased a map, two books on native flora and fauna, a leather-bound journal, ink, a canteen, an axe with a 36-inch handle, a hunting knife, 30 feet of braided paracord, a small fishing kit, waterproof matches, a compass, and a Swiss gear pack to place it all in. I told myself that if I had forgotten anything, I didn't need it, or would be able to construct it for myself. Either way, I would either make Jew or die, and although I wouldn't describe myself at the time as suicidal, death didn't seem such a horrible alternative. The hike to the Southwest Cape took me almost three days, the journey made longer because of the mud from recent rains. Sleep was difficult the first night, as it had been some time since I had slept on the ground, and the reality of my endeavor finally began to sink in. While experienced within the natural world, slight anxiety came over me upon the realization that I may have bitten off more than I could chew, and I had no fallback option. Juxtaposed with this thought, was a comfort in knowing that my newfound worry indicated a resurgence in my will to live. Eventually, my psyche balanced these two notions, and I did manage to sleep a few hours, waking with renewed confidence in the face of the rising sun. Days two and three were largely uneventful, save for a brief but violent thunderstorm and a confrontational encounter with what may have been a brush-tail possum. Despite the critter's sincere efforts, I found myself on the coastline midday of the third. Authentic peril would not rear its head until that evening. My efforts in constructing camp that day concluded with the completion of a water collection basin that I devised from several broad ferns and a species of bamboo that I knew had been introduced to the area centuries before. Previously, I'd created a small hut of the same bamboo and ferns to serve as my shelter until I ventured to build something more ambitious, along with a moderate fire and a few limb lines for fishing. Resigning myself to relaxation for the remainder of the day, I took off my clothes and my boots and braved the somewhat murky but refreshing surf. Initially, I was met with intrigue in regards to the gradient at which the water deepened. Approximately 100 meters from shore, I found myself only knee-deep, and I could feel the soft white sands beneath my soles. In hindsight, 
Perhaps the lack of aquatic life in the area should have been an indicator of something amiss, but I was still planted firmly in the euphoria of my self-engineered renaissance. I stood for perhaps another thirty seconds, merely observing my surroundings, and then took a step forward. From there, I cannot convey the alarm that I experienced when I was suddenly and completely submerged. I'm ashamed to say that my instinctual reaction was panic. I had not seen any darkening of the water to indicate such a drastic depth change, and yet there I was. I kicked frantically for the surface and found it soon enough, gasping for breath. As I regained my composure, I cursed my neglect for not bringing goggles or a snorkel, for who knew what sort of wonder-laden reef I may have stumbled upon. Regardless, my decision to resubmerge was met by terror, surpassed only by events that would occur later. I exhaled just enough oxygen to go under and stabilize at approximately three meters. I thought that maybe the water somehow became more buoyant at this point, but disregarded the feeling as my imagination. I decided to open my eyes despite the salinized water, and I peered down. Deep below me, in a black, abysmal hole that can only be described as a void, were a pair of whitewashed eyes, visible only because of their apparent uncanny ability to reflect such finite amounts of light. The pupils were entirely black, with no rings of color, and appeared to be transfixed upon me. I was stricken with fright, yet unable to save myself from my impending doom. Entranced, I continued to stare downward, waiting for the appearance of some gaping hole of a mouth to inhale me into the terrible unknown of its insides. But the moment never came. I received, whether it was from some sort of telepathy or my own intuition, the distinct feeling that this mammoth creature wished to harm me in ways that man had never known, but something was holding it back. I couldn't fathom what could possibly be restraining the beast, its size surely rivaling that of a submarine or battleship. My chest, burning for air, brought me back from my fearful marveling, and I tried desperately to swim to the surface, yet I still could not move. I remember only the taste of salt and stagnant water as I drifted into merciful unconsciousness, a strange pang of relief echoing in my thoughts. I awoke on the beach on what seemed to be the next morning, face up with a strand of kelp around my midsection, and a feeling not unlike a hangover. I jolted upward, aggravating my headache, but deeming it more important to scan the water for the creature. I spied nothing but the crashing waves and scattered fragments of driftwood. I collapsed back onto the sand and gazed into the overcast sky, edging on delirium and only capable of thinking of the eyes. Oh, God, the eyes. After an eternity of contemplation, I found the motivation to rise and attempt to carry on. I could find no rational explanation short of some strange hallucination, but could recall nothing that would have caused it. Throughout the day, my intellect, continued to pull me towards the multitudes of legends and unsolved mysteries of the unexplored sea. Unknown sounds captured on tape. Megalodon sharks, Jules Verne novels, the Bermuda Triangle, and others similar. 
nothing I could fathom satisfied me, and I despaired with no discernible reason as to why I did not abandon my supposed slice of paradise and a dull anxiety that persisted for the remainder of the day. I cut my fishing lines simultaneously, knowing that they would yield nothing while also fearing what may be present at their ends. It was then that I realized I had witnessed not a single marine life form. My fire had smoldered to ashes, so I replenished it, gathering driftwood from the beach and dried foliage from the tree line, all the while keeping a wary eye on the water, awaiting the appalling eyes that resided below the surface. On that day, they made no appearance. There should be no surprise that I did not sleep well that night. Having exhausted my wildlife manual and eliminating no form of insect or animal otherwise that could have induced my experience. By morning, however, my distress began to dissipate as my mind exhausted itself and simply relegated its time to other things, food, for example. At some point after dawn, I made the decision to hike somewhat inland and try my hand at trapping, as fishing seemed foolish and I felt the need to get away from the shore for a time. I endeavored to create six traps, all sling rigs camouflaged with the litter of the forest. It was during my search for an animal sign that I discovered the Emma. The schooner, with its name etched in fading stain on its stern, was approximately 500 meters inland, lying capsized on its deck, with several varieties of vine and runners growing around the masts which had been forced through the bottom of the hull and stood erect, as if the ship had been dropped on its top from a great height. The hull itself was perhaps twenty meters, large enough for a dozen crew members at the most. Curiously enough, there were immense circular patterns etched into the ship's surface, as if a gargantuan plecostomus had scraped a meal of algae from the vessel while it was still afloat. Summarily, I decided that I could adapt and renovate the craft into my permanent residence, its location away from the waterline suddenly appealing. I finished setting my traps at a distance and began my new project immediately. The labor was invigorating. I was so excited about my fortune in finding the Emma that I nearly forgot about my encounter, thinking of it only occasionally and partially, settling on dehydration as a likely culprit. Using my axe, I cut an entry to the hull and began clearing what little sun-starved growth there was, along with eradicating any unwanted inhabitants. I battled briefly with the notion that I might find human remains, or even lost treasures, but discovered neither. My only finding was an old leather volume, coming apart at the spine. It was apparent that the tome had been either sunken or rained on, as indicated by the illegible remains of water diluted ink on the pages. The only decipherable items were two in number. A single date, March 21st, 1925, and the phrase, It Calls Me, near the bottom of the last used page. I presumed at the time it was a sailor, referring to the call of the personified ocean. Finally satisfied with the day's accomplishments, I checked my traps, another brush-tail possum, and something resembling a kiwi, 
and trudged back to the shoreline campsite. I had actually managed to wholly put the day before out of mind until I looked to the eastern horizon. In the sun's late glow, I stared yet again at it, this time with its eyes and a portion of its massive head breaching the surface. The eyes maintained their washed-out quality despite reflecting the incoming sunset, and now, with some reference, I could see the thing was much larger than I had originally estimated. Its scalp appeared cephalopodon nature, with a wet olive-green hue, and luckily a layer of some sort of plasmatic coating. Just beneath the water's now churning surface, I could distinguish at least eight serpentine masses seeming to extend from the head, writhing together with some form of lateral undulation. As before, I could not move. Sometime during this, I fell to my knees, not out of dumbfounded dread, but some intellectual need to kneel, as if before royalty. I don't recall being explicitly told to do so, but it felt it an intelligent thing to do for the sake of my continuing to be. As I reached the ground, however, I again lost consciousness, as the nightmare began to emerge, its mouth opening to reveal concentric rings of teeth and emitting a bellowing groan, akin to a great horn signaling battle. I woke this time where I had fallen, with a mouthful of sand and that hungover feeling. There was a full moon evocative of the thing's pale gaze, I was forced then to accept what I had seen as real. Upon awakening, I reluctantly went down to the water to rinse my mouth of the sand, but I found it rancid, congealed with a layer of briny foam and the smell of decaying shellfish. There were great divides in the sand as if something had been dragged. I returned to my collection basin and then noticed the collapsed trees and trampled undergrowth. A horrible notion struck me, and I ran back to the Emma, only to find it absent. I then thought for the first time that I had overstayed my welcome on Stewart Island. Quickly I gathered what was left of my supplies back at the shoreline, and began hiking northeast towards Oban at dawn. Any hope of salvaging my adventure firmly severed. I would gladly resume my yuppie life in the States, if it meant never having another encounter with the behemoth. For the first hour or two, I made excellent time, motivated by my panic and, perhaps, sufficient to cut a day from the duration of my hike. But I hadn't truly rested for days, and it began to take its toll. Sometime around noon, I leaned against the tree to rest. I despised stopping, yet slept almost instantly, my mind and body, finally giving in to fatigue. As I slept, I experienced what can only be described as a prophecy. I stood back in the water where I had fallen under, my back to the shore. I watched the black water as it progressed from fine bubbling to roiling. I could sense that I should wade towards land, but was unable to turn around. At last I could see the eyes, still entrancing, as I rose to the surface, I again could smell the spoiled crustacean odor, and as the thing's head breached, I tried to scream, but I could only gasp as I fell forward into the acrid turmoil 
of the monster's lair. Submerged, I opened my eyes and viewed the creature's arms and torso. It appeared oddly humanoid, but covered in scales and barnacles. Massive crabs skittered about on its skin, having made their homes in the various marine flora present there. It extended down into nothing, but continued to rise, its legs yet visible, as it became apparent that I could not comprehend the monstrosity's true size. I turned my attention to coming up for air and broke the surface. I awoke screaming and chilled, and with that, my recount has come to an end. As I turned about and realized that somehow I'm back at my campsite, a quote from an author who escapes me at the moment comes to mind. The most merciful thing in the world is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. My waking cognizance suddenly comprehends the totality of what has transpired and is driving me mad. Somehow what I've done here has awoken something that's been dormant for a time immeasurable. And like me, it tires of the world as it is. It beckons me to help it escape. As I walk out to its cursed pit, I understand that the world is ready for harvest, and I cannot purge its call emanating from the cavernous depths. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed Beckoning from the Deep by Pen Phantom 13, as performed by yours truly. Up next, we've got a second story for you. This one from author Luna Kinesis. In it, we learn the hard way that the old adage may be true. Don't judge a book by its cover. Curiosity won't just kill the cat. It might have it in it for you, too. Before I proceed, however, I'd like to tell you a bit more about tonight's sponsor, Natural Disasters, the latest podcast program from our friends at ParCast. Here at Scary Stories Told in the Dark, we're no strangers to terrifying tales. It's what we live and breathe. But as we all know, there are some things far more fearsome than fictional encounters with the paranormal. Tsunamis, volcanoes, tornadoes, earthquakes. These are real-life monsters. We like to think we're prepared for a catastrophe, but time and time again, Mother Nature proves us wrong. That's where Parcast comes in. Each week, 
The Parcast Network's new podcast, Natural Disasters, investigates the Earth's most devastating catastrophes and explores the stories of the people impacted by them. And, by means of their riveting audio series, you'll feel like you're right there beside those who experienced the events, right down to every tremor and gust of wind. The show is proud to cover ancient natural disasters shrouded in mystery, like the volcanic eruption of Mount Vesuvius, where it's believed that 16,000 people died due to heat and suffocation. Can you imagine? But that's not all. They look at modern mayhem, too, with recent catastrophes, like the breathtaking moment when eight climbers were caught in a terrible blizzard in 1996 as they attempted to scale Mount Everest, or the events surrounding the 2011 tsunami that killed an estimated 18,000 people in Japan with waves reported to have been as tall as three stories. Natural Disasters reminds us that despite humanity's achievements, we are no match for the fury of Mother Nature. And Parcast's latest program won't ever let you forget it. You can listen and subscribe to Natural Disasters for free on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Be sure to check them out. And if you enjoy what you hear, leave them a five-star review and a kind word in the comments. And let them know that Otis and the team at Scary Stories Told in the Dark sent you. Thanks so much for listening and for giving Natural Disasters a try this month. Now that we've put you off of ever leaving your home again, thanks to Parcast and Natural Disasters, allow me to give you plenty more reasons why you're not safe indoors either. (laughs) Without further ado, from author Luna Kinesis, I present to you The Lake. Cryptozoology has always been a minor interest of mine. I say minor because it was something I'd only enjoyed casually. A few internet articles here and there, scrolling through a couple of pages on a Tumblr blog dedicated to it, maybe watching one of those Bigfoot documentaries. You know, that kind of interest. Nothing serious. Generally, that would be pretty common for most people. Most people, however, do not live in my little town, where a supposed cryptid is how many folks here make a living. See, I live in a small town in the UK, more specifically, in the northwest of England. It's a tiny place not many people outside of the country have likely heard of, unless they've already been there for whatever reason, or have an interest in cryptids. My small town is situated by one of the many lakes that dot this part of the country, and as so many bodies of water do we have our own Loch Ness Monster. So many people claim. Anyway, I'm sure many of you are skeptical of that, as you are of any such monster. Who can blame you? I grew up here, and I didn't buy into that. I found it interesting, but I didn't believe it. Same as I didn't believe those people who claimed aliens probed their backsides or that Bigfoot had destroyed their camp. It was something to read about and enjoy, but not something I believed. 
Most of my generation and that of my parents felt the same, but many of my grandparents here clung to the belief in the monster. They stayed away from the lake unless they were in decently sized boats or one of the many ferries that traveled the length of the lake to nearby settlements. Not us kids and teens, though, especially not in summer. Most of the time, British summers are nothing to brag about. They're pretty warm, but usually cloudy and wet. Sometimes, however, we were blessed with a heat wave. Nothing was better than a dip in the lake during the heat of the day. During the school holidays, the older kids would hang out by the lake well into the evening. The worst that ever happened was that someone would get a cramp while swimming, and we'd have to get them back to shore, or someone would get their foot tangled in some lake weed and freak out until they realized what it actually was. Nothing sinister, nothing serious. Most certainly no lake monster. One particular day during the Easter break, where it was much too cold to spend more than five minutes at a time in the lake, I was spending my time climbing the many tall trees that covered the areas around the lakes. Maybe I was a bit old for tree climbing, slightly, but it had always been something I'd enjoyed doing, something about climbing as high as I could go and settling down on a sturdy branch, just looking over my surroundings, was something I enjoyed. Most of the time, I'd just watch boats going up and down the lake, people going about their business, cars passing down the country roads. Just typical stuff not worthy of merit. But this day in spring was different. The day itself was like any other. A chilly but sunny day in late March. I'd already taken up my temporary church in an old oak, where I'd stay for an hour or so before going off to meet friends. From where I was perched, I could see two young kids, maybe around eight or nine, playing down by the shore. They weren't close to the water, just sitting in the grassy area, a little ways off the bank. Two girls, I couldn't really see, what they were doing beyond that general observation. Uh, This was nothing out of the ordinary. What was unusual was the large, dapple-gray horse trotting along the shoreline towards them. Horses weren't exactly an unusual sight themselves out in a rural town, but they were usually in their fields or accompanied by a rider. There was no one else in sight, and this horse had no saddle, bridle, or any other sort of riding gear. There are no true wild horses in the United Kingdom, and the only semi-wild horses make their home in the New Forest, somewhere right at the other side of the country. That left the option of it having somehow gotten out of its field. For all it seemed weird to me, in hindsight, it wasn't all that unusual. Tourists were always crossing through private land and leaving gates open. Animals were bound to get out on occasion. The kids took immediate notice of the animal, looking up from their chatter and letting out delighted squeals I could hear even from my spot up in the tree. I watched as I ran up to it, fearless as all children were, oblivious to the fact that if they spooked it, one kick from its front or back legs could shatter their developing bones. I watched as the pair gleefully pet the animal. The horse itself didn't seem to mind the attention, which led me to think it was one frequently used for riding, 
most likely one of the horses rented out to tourists so they could enjoy a ride through the countryside. The horse lowered its head, allowing one of the kids to press a hand to its muzzle. I could hear their delighted laughter as the pair took turns, alternating between stroking its flank and head. It was pretty cute, I have to admit. There's always something magical about an unfamiliar animal being content with your presence. With how calm this horse seemed to be, I didn't bat an eye as it lowered itself to the ground. The pair of kids seemed ecstatic about this, climbing onto the animal's back. Not exactly safe or smart, but kids don't really think like that, and I'm sure the horse would have made it very clear it didn't want them clamoring all over it if it wanted to. It was a pretty damn big horse. It took me a few moments to realize the children were no longer letting out happy squeals and giggles. They were screaming. I couldn't understand why at first, but as my vision focused more on the horse, I knew. How I hadn't noticed the change, I don't know. But where once it had been dapple gray, it was now black. The kind of black that seems to absorb all light around it, distorting it. It seemed to be dripping wet. Even from my spot in the tree, I could see the tangled mess of its waterlogged mane and tail licking water onto the ground. Its eyes were the worst of it. I shouldn't have been able to see them clearly from such a distance, but even in the dull spring sun, I could see the glowing from those sickening, milky eyes. It threw its head back, rising to its feet, with the children still on its back. They were trying to get off, but they couldn't. I don't know how, and I'm sure they didn't know how either, but no matter how much they struggled and screamed, they couldn't get off of that horse. It was like they were super-glued to it. I couldn't move from my spot, no matter how much my mind screamed at me, to jump down and do something, anything. I'm ashamed to admit fear consumed me. Sweat dripped down my brow as my breathing grew more rapid by the second. My heart was beating so hard and fast that it hurt. I have no proper words to describe the primal terror that gripped me. The same terror, I imagine, gripped our ancestors when confronted by a giant cave bear or an angry mammoth, though where their fight-or-flight instinct would kick in, mine didn't. I was simply frozen. Frozen as the beast charged towards the water, screaming children on its back, their cries not silenced, until their heads dipped under the water, water that frothed and bubbled as they struggled beneath the surface. Then nothing, just an eerie stillness on that spring morning. Not even the birds sang. I think they knew. Animals just know these things. I don't know how long I sat up in that tree just staring out over the water where that horse had vanished into the murk. I don't know what became of those kids, but I know they were never found and they never will be. It was written off as accidental drowning. Their parents beat themselves up over it as any parent would. Nothing like this had ever happened before in our little community. Kids who grew up around the lake pretty much knew how to swim by the time they could walk, and they knew to be careful by the water. It didn't add up, of course, but beyond that, no one could explain it. I think the parents clung to the hope that their children simply ran away 
or were kidnapped so that they might one day find them again, and I can't blame them for that. I never told anyone what I saw. No one would have believed me anyway, save for a few ancient cronies nobody took seriously, who frequently babbled about ghosts and ghouls. It haunts me that I did nothing, that I simply watched as those innocent children were pulled into a watery grave. I never went into the lake after that. To anyone that asked, I simply said that I didn't like the way the smell of the lake water clung to me. I didn't think I'd ever tell this story, but I still live in this town over a decade later. And last night, I saw a dapple gray horse stalking along the lakeside. I hope you enjoyed The Lake by Luna Kinesis, as performed by yours truly. Up next, we've got a tale for you from author D. Fulkerson that follows a psychiatrist who is convinced his wife has been seeing things. But what if her hallucinations are more real than he suspects? Without further ado, I present to you The Spider in the Bed. I don't want to talk, really. I just want to go to bed, she said, taking out her earrings. She hustled by him without making eye contact, tossed the mail on the dresser, and lightly brushed him away. He, reflectively, glanced at the scattered envelopes. Bills. What's that one from Venezuela? All bills. He remembered loving her. She was beautiful in youth. She was tall, lithe, and had an angular face with gorgeously high cheekbones. He wasn't sure why she began to date him. He had a good job back then, yes, but clearly she could have found someone better, duller, richer. Maybe she underestimated her drawing power. Maybe she needed stability. She was still tall and thin, but age and Botox had pulled her skin porcelain tight and sharp. She looked like a big-haired skeleton. She vigorously rubbed the makeup off her face, changed into her nightgown, and again rushed by him on the way to bed. Just, just, no. I'm going to read a little, but don't talk to me. He dropped his head, did his nightly routine, climbed under the cold covers, and rolled away from her. He tried to close his eyes. He could hear her breathing. A loud staccato suck, followed by a drawn exhale. Each turn of the page seemed like a Velcro rip. How did it come to this? He'd been having trouble sleeping lately. He'd even resorted to self-prescribing a sleeping pill. That stuff knocked him out so hard that he'd sleepwalk through the next day. That's all I need, to test positive for benzos on the job. Or alcohol? No, I can't take anything stronger than warm milk. Hell, they could take away his medical license. He gritted his teeth, cringed at every sound from her side of the bed, and waited for the sweet succor of the light switch. She was staying up later and later. She must have known how much this irritated him. He hated his life 
his job, and now even his bed. Somewhere in the midst of thinking her book would never end, his lids grew heavy and darkness took him. He rushed through the classroom. I thought I'd dropped this class. I thought I was clear. Did I not? I didn't even read a text. This will ruin my grades. I'm applying for medical school. I swear I dropped this class. A thump on his foot snapped his eyes awake. He was in a fog, sweating and feeling like he'd finished a sprint. His eyes tried to focus. Dream. Something had fallen on the bed. It was a dream. He had a lot of those dreams. In his dreams, he was always running, always behind, always forgetting something important. Was he awake now? He couldn't move. What just shook the bed? Oh, must have been the cat. Damn it, I need to get some sleep. He rolled over and noted his wife's shape next to him. He couldn't hear her breathing. He could hear his own breathing, and somehow it sounded too loud. Go to sleep. His feet were too hot, and they were always too hot. He jumbled with the covers to let his foot dangle loose. He was tangled briefly, and he couldn't quite kick away the damn throw pillow at his foot. He rolled over again to get a visual clue, and his foot finally found the night air. His eyes tried in vain to fixate on a reference. Occasionally, a car would drive by, and the moving light would cross the heavy, darkened room. His eyes settled on the pillow near his foot. Oh, its shape was just, well, odd. He didn't remember a pillow when he went to bed. Did the cat jump on the bed? He'd put the cat out, or did he? Actually, he didn't remember putting out the cat. Is it the cat? Am I even awake? The shape seemed even blacker than dark. He closed his eyes. Go to sleep. He tried, in vain. The harder he concentrated on sleep, the more he felt awake. He slowly opened his eyes again and fixated on the shape. It clearly had weight. He could feel a gradual slope of the mattress with his covered leg. He felt a rising sense of dread as he noted how near it was to his exposed foot. Why did I do that? This is stupid. Just kick the damn thing off the bed. Just kick... With your other leg, just... He didn't move. Now, fully awake, he mentally berated himself from being fixated on a pillow. He stared at the shape, and somehow he felt that the shape was staring back. He felt his pulse in his neck and in his head. He felt clammy. Was he going to throw up? Shit, just kick it! He gradually moved his covered leg gently toward the shape. Nothing. He was close. Shit! 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 Okay, one more push. His foot got just under the shape. It definitely had a weight, and it definitely felt heavier than a throw pillow. His climbiness turned to confusion. What the heck is... It moved! He shook with a small spasm that jolted up his spine. Oh, shit, it moved. Didn't it? I swear it moved, didn't it? I felt it push back. God, my foot is right there. 
Is it the cat? Just turn on the light. His mouth was dry. Yes, it was definitely closer to his exposed foot. Definitely closer. I'm dreaming. Is this a dream? He began to withdraw his foot, feeling like it needed to get safe under the blanket. He did this slowly at first, but then, there, it moved. I definitely saw it move. He quickly pulled his foot back up when the shape brushed his ankle. He felt an insistent, stubbled finger that filled him with a shudder. Another car was approaching. He saw the light start on the ceiling and knew it would sweep just over the foot of the bed. The light moved quickly, and as it did, it glistened off eight black staring eyes and tracked over a sickeningly fat, soft body surrounded by eight crouching legs. Shit! He screamed, springing from the bed and fumbling for the light. He ran to the switch barefoot, hopping along the carpet, lest he step on something horrible. He bolted to the hall, turned on the light, and stood still, hyperventilating and shivering. What the hell? She started from the bed, her angular face twisted in fury. What are you doing? She covered her eyes and blinked hard from the light. What's going on? She drew her nightgown and charged at him. What? A spider. I saw a spider. Her eyebrows peaked. You saw a spider. And? It was huge. Like a foot or two across. I thought it was the cat. It was huge. She shook her head and tried to process what he was saying. Like a tarantula or something? Yes, only bigger. His body involuntarily cringed. It was huge. It was just sitting on the bed. You saw a tarantula. On our bed. This is what you woke me up for? Damn it. I swear. Well, go kill it. He stared back at her helplessly. Oh, jeez. She rolled her eyes and clucked her tongue. Well, let's take a look. She went back into the bedroom. He shivered in the hall. Is there a giant spider in here? Oh, a scary spider. Where are you? He heard her clomp around. She poked her head out of the bedroom. No, spider. God, you're such a pussy. Now go back to sleep. He was now fully awake, mortified, and still nauseous. The lights were all safely on, and he could see the bedroom clearly. He rifled through the covers. Nothing. No throw pillow, no spider. Nothing. It was a dream. I've got a big presentation tomorrow. I guess today, technically, she said, scanning the clock. Go to sleep. Don't let the spiders bite. She giggled to herself. Seriously, we've got to get you medicated. He crawled back into bed, pulse still racing, skin still clammy. She's right, he thought. A giant spider? That's just stupid. There's the occasional black widow around here, but those red-bellied things are small and smooth. Daddy Longlegs? It's nothing like that. I just had a nightmare, nothing more. She shut off the light, and he was again surrounded by shadows. Just a nightmare. She became a motionless lump next to him. For as much as her noisy awake breathing and reading annoyed him, 
He found her silent, slave-breathing even more unsettling. He kept his feet tucked firmly under the covers. Oh, stupid. This is just stupid. I've got to get some sleep. He tried to calm his mind, but his heart was still racing. He screwed his eyes tightly closed, but he couldn't help scanning the room every time a car passed. He tried to count. He tried a few relaxation techniques that he taught his patients. He fought to fall asleep, but the more he concentrated, the more awake he fell. His mind continued to race. He thought about spiders, about how tired he was going to be the next day. Spiders, his wife's cold hatred. There is no spider. I'm not getting to sleep. I'll just stay awake until it gets light. I'll just nap at lunch. What is that? Sick dread swept over him as he noticed a shadow tucked between the wall and the ceiling. You're just too tired. There's no spider. God, I can't wake her up again. That's nothing, just a shadow. It's not moving. It's waiting. He couldn't avert his gaze. He was afraid to blink, for fear the shadow would instantly dash away, and he'd lose sight of it. I'll just stare at it until the morning comes. It won't move if I stare at it. He played different scenarios in his head. He'd like to turn on the lights, find a shoe, and just kill it. Then he pictured himself missing it with the shoe, and it attacking and running after him, and... He shuddered again. Oh, no, he thought. I have to pee. Maybe if I turn on, on, on the light, all, all the shadows will disappear. It'll be gone. But she will wake up. Which is worse. He always had to go to the bathroom at night. He would stumble blindly around the room until he found the door. Now the thought of reaching out with his hands and feeling the unseen walls made him feel sick. What if he felt a hairy, moving, crawling mass? What if he disturbed some hideous arachnid that would then leap onto him? A swift shudder shot through him. He closed his eyes and concentrated. Maybe I could just wet the bed. She'd definitely kill him then. The unwavering feeling in his bladder momentarily distracted him from the shadow. It's gone. Shit. He didn't know if he should feel better or worse. He stared at the corner. There it is. No. No, it's gone. Where? He scanned the room hesitantly. Another car drove by. The lights traced the room. Shit! The spider was crouching on the dresser legs drawn beneath it. When the light hit it, it shook briefly, then scuttled behind the furniture. He reached over to his nightstand and flipped on the light. He sat in the bed, sweating and shivering. It was just a shadow. There's no spider. He glanced over at his wife, who mercifully seemed asleep. The room was now filled with delicious light. He looked around for a weapon of some sort and decided on grabbing a small electric fan that was perched on his nightstand. He'd throw it at it. What? There's nothing. I'll throw it at it and run away. My God. God, he thought. I'm delirious. He pulled his legs out of the bed and, fan in hand, approached the dresser. Nothing. What are you doing? Just going to the bath. Turn out the light. 
He shuffled to the bathroom. He glanced nervously at the dresser and found the courage to peek behind it. Nothing. He felt numb from exhaustion. Maybe I should just go into the office. 2.30 in the morning. Stupid. He crawled back into bed and pulled the covers completely over his head, leaving just his nose and mouth exposed. How horrible would it be for something to crawl across his head? The very thought was sickening. He'd just stay safely tucked in, because a blanket is adequate protection against a giant nightmare spider. He was angry and disappointed with himself. I'm not a child. I'm not afraid of the dark. Still, the blankets made him feel better, and soon his eyes grew heavy. It was just too hot. He couldn't stay totally covered. He tried, but he just couldn't do it. He slowly pulled the blanket down. He paused at each inch, waiting for something he knew was impossible, but filled him with dread anyway. Nothing. He slowly exposed his face. Fine, he thought. I'm about to fall asleep. Soon this will all be over. He rolled over to face his nightstand. There, inches from his face, was the spider, easily able to stretch its legs around his face, reaching out to him. The spider's lidless eyes met his, and its fangs twitched. Shit! He screamed, and sprinted out of the room, not daring to look where his feet were hitting, not stopping at the hall, but racing to the kitchen. A knife! He needed a knife! What the hell is going on, damn it? She sprinted after him. He turned on every light. It's on the nightstand. There's something seriously wrong with I saw the spider sitting on the nightstand. It was right in front of my face. It covered the whole top of the nightstand. I, I, I know it sounds crazy. His words were dripping now with anger. Anger replaced fear. And you're going to stab it, she said, noticing the knife. All right, let's just take a step back. Let's go look through the room together, okay? Look together. He nodded. They walked back to the bedroom. He clutched the knife. What good was a knife? I guess it was better than a fan. She turned on the lights. There was nothing on the nightstand. Okay, let's start with the bed. She took off all the blankets, shook them out, tossed them on the floor. Want to check under the bed? A wave of panic hit him. You pansy. She bent down. Can't see. She went over to her nightstand, opened the drawer, and pulled out a flashlight. She bent down again and waved the light around. Come here. You've got to see this. Do you see it? He bent down, now hoping for validation. Nothing. I see nothing. Look for yourself. She pointed the flashlight into each corner. Aside from a few cat toys and dust balls, there was nothing. She could tell by his face that he still wasn't satisfied. You check those drawers. I'll check these. They began to search the two dressers, looking in each drawer. He hesitated before opening each drawer, half wanting to find it, half cringing in horror at the possibility of it waiting for him. He checked behind and under the furniture. He checked her nightstand. Wait. He opened the drawer and they both saw half a pack of cigarettes. 
Neither of them smoked. Both of them stood there, stunned. Thoughts of a giant spider completely left. Honey, she cut him off. I'm not doing this now, not at three o'clock in the damn morning. I'm just not doing this now. She walked back to the kitchen. He followed her. She fumbled in the cabinet and the refrigerator. She pulled out a pill casing. We go back to sleep and we'll talk about this in the morning. Who is he? I said I'm not doing this now. I want you to take this. She handed him a sleeping pill. This'll knock me out, he said. Yes, exactly. We both need some sleep. We'll talk in the morning. She handed him the pill. She didn't let him see that she crushed four more pills in the cup of milk she now put in the microwave. He looked at her, head swimming in a nightmare of anger, sickness, and hurt. He knew this was going on. He knew for weeks. Maybe that's why his nightmares had gotten so vivid. He was a psychiatrist. He knew the subconscious manifestations of stress. Yes, he was having nightmares about loss and neglect, and somehow this made him hallucinate a giant spider. The microwave dinged, and she handed him the cup. We'll talk tomorrow. He drank the warm, poisoned milk. She grabbed a few quilts and put them on the couch. You stay here. She stomped back to the bedroom and slammed the door. He was stunned and numb. He absent-mindedly flipped on the television. He flipped between online shopping shows, reruns, and bad television edited horror. Wasn't I just afraid? Now I feel nothing. He watched one show for a few minutes, then switched to another. He'd give her the divorce. No, wait. He hadn't done anything wrong. Maybe the spider would eat her. He leaked a morbid smile. What was that damn cat? He looked over at the cat's food dish. It was full. So was the water. A large yawn involuntarily took him. He stood up and instantly regretted it. He felt dizzy and disoriented. He stumbled off the couch, knowing he'd soon be completely enveloped by the medicinal haze. He didn't know why, but he wanted to find that cat. He looked at the cat's bed and found nothing. He stumbled toward the laundry room, knowing that the cat sometimes hid in clean clothes. He saw nothing at first. The sleeping pills began to take over his body. Each movement required maximal effort. His legs were heavy. He knew he only had a few moments to get back to the couch. His eyes blurred and he couldn't find a way to keep them in focus. Just behind the dryer, he saw a small black lump that had to be the cat. He braced himself on the washer and stumbled toward the dryer. Buttons, where are you? He looked over the hood of the dryer and his heart stopped in a flood of nauseous dread. There was a thicket of web extending as high as the appliance. A half-eaten cat was enveloped as was what looked like a bird and a mouse. He felt his stomach rise and felt a wretch heave out of his mouth. He stumbled out of the room, trying to scream for his wife, but produced no sound. His legs were no longer bound in servitude to his brain, and he fell into the hall. His arms felt stuck to the carpet, 
and he couldn't find the strength to roll over. He blinked slowly. Sleep was defeating terror, yet the terror was with him, just trapped in the darkness behind his eyelids. He saw the bedroom door open, and then he saw the bony feet of his wife. He blinked heavily again. He struggled, struggled to open his eyes. When he did, he saw the spider crouched in full light just in front of her legs. The spider drew its legs closer, as if coiling a spring. Then it sprinted toward him with sickening speed. He couldn't find the strength to move or scream. He prayed that medicine would take him before he felt its bite. I hope you enjoyed The Spider in the Bed by Dee Fulkerson, as performed by yours truly. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me tonight for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Gyrie channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Gyrie. Finally, thanks again to today's sponsor, ParCast, and their newest podcast program, Natural Disasters, for their support of this show. Don't forget, you can listen and subscribe to Natural Disasters for free on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to let them know that Otis and the team at Scary Stories Told in the Dark sent you with a kind word in the comments section of your favorite app and a well-deserved five-star review. Once again, thanks so much for listening and for giving Natural Disasters a try this month. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. 
Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Programs artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jiry channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. 
Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.